0: Hey day, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the 50 Years Ago in Hockey podcast. This is weekly episode number 121. I'm your host, Rick Cole. Every week, right here on the Hockey Podcast Network, we take a trip back in time down memory lane, and we bring you all the hockey news from 50 years ago, exactly as it happened, as it was reported in the words of some of the greatest sports writers Of all time. This week, we're looking at March 6th to March 12th, 1972. Now, if you like what we do here every week on the Hockey Podcast Network, and we're hoping to get back on Twitter every day very soon. Uh, You can help us out a lot by going to patreon.com slash hockey 50 years and subscribe to the podcast. Subscribers not only get early access to each week's free podcast, but we have some really neat stuff and special content. Uh, Those episodes allow us to delve more deeply and in greater detail into the stories that were really important in the hockey world 50 years ago. We have uh, more special features for the Patreon folks planted, and uh, in fact, we are going to be doing a special Patreon episode, Uh, we call them our overtime sessions, uh, because there's just too much news in this week for a regular podcast episode. So we're going to look at a few of the more involved stories from that week as well. Uh, Some really great writing by some very, very well-known hockey writers. So things are getting a little better for us each week with some of those long COVID systems we spoke of last week, but the fatigue and the brain fog, They still continue to be the most disruptive part of the whole thing for me, uh, and that slows me down. So we do a lot of editing and uh, several takes on some of the stuff we're reading. The writing is the hardest part. I just can't type like I used to. I really hope, as I said, to return to the Twitter feed soon, but we're going to take small steps. I don't want to rush anything uh, the the toughest task right now is catching up on the research. I missed about a month of doing my research and I always kept myself about a month ahead of time and I, I lost all that. Uh, I just couldn't do the work. So that's the toughest thing to do right now and that's the thing that we're most involved in at this time. So let's start this week by Taking a look at the NHL standings in the playoff races as we're heading into home stretch for the 1971 72 NHL season. So, in the NHL's Eastern Division, the Bruins continue to lead, and they had opened up a seven point lead over the New York Rangers, who, of course, had an awful loss last week when Jean Rattel, their top player and battling Phil Esposito for the scoring league, broke an ankle, and so he was going to be out for the rest of the regular season at least. Montreal was eight back of the uh, Rangers in third place in the East and the final playoff spot had Toronto and Detroit in a dead heat each was 67 points but as the week began the Leafs had a game in hand over the Red Wings so that would give them the nod at least as it looked in the papers but who was going to finish fourth it was way up in the air uh Rounding out the Eastern Division with Buffalo in sixth place, and they had opened up a three-point lead over the Knuckleheads from Vancouver. In the Western Division, the Blackhawks now have a 14-point lead over Minnesota, who had challenged early in the season, but the Blackhawks now with 89 points to the North Stars, 75 Back in third place, and this is where the dogfight for the final two playoff spots in the Western Division begins, the St. Louis Blues... Uh, had 55 points then it was the Philadelphia Flyers with 53 the California Golden Seals 52 and the surging Pittsburgh Penguins suddenly rejuvenated as Red Kelly was allowed to concentrate solely on his coaching duties after giving up the GM portfolio and the Penguins had 51 just four points behind third place St. Louis so four, third, and fourth actually in the west both definitely up for grabs the other team in the western division was the los angeles kings and actually they had done a little better as well with 41 points 10 back of pittsburgh but it was still uh no contest for the for the kings they weren't going to make it now the red wings and leafs as we say right even dead even in fourth place in the east what happens if those two clubs are tied at the end of the NHL schedule? Well, the league office has the answer. If they have the same number of points at the end of the schedule, fourth place will be decided by comparing their records like this. First, most wins. If each has the same number of wins, then it goes to their one loss records against each other. Now, if each has beaten the other three times, then their records will go in the Eastern Division. That is, the records against Eastern Division teams will be compared. Now, if they're still tied after that, the final tiebreaker will be the most goals scored. And if they're tied after that, they're just going to give both of them the Stanley Cup. Well, no, they're not. But they didn't bother going any farther than that. And really, why Would they? Here's some news that grabbed the attention of hockey fans in Canada, people like myself in Southern Ontario on Monday of this week. Harold Ballard was already starting to act like the petulant child he was in threatening to move Hockey Night in Canada from the CBC or, or, or something like that. Anyway, we will, this is a, a quick report we had in the Toronto uh, Star, I believe it was, and we'll just give you what was going on at this point. There will be a much more detailed look at this in our overtime session for our patreon subscribers which we're going to uh, put out in a few days as well harold ballard president of maple leaf gardens threatened to keep canadian broadcasting corporation the good old cbc threatened to keep their crews out of Maple Leaf Gardens and give the Saturday Night Hockey telecast to CTV, the CTV network, because CBC technicians blacked out Saturday night's game after only 17 seconds of play. Ballard, president of the Gardens and the Maple Leafs, said... "...I am offering the telecast of the Toronto Maple Leafs commencing this Saturday to whatever station or group of stations will guarantee coverage of the Leafs' stretch run for a playoff position." Ballard went on to say that Saturday's disgraceful action by the CBC technicians when they walked out on the Leaf game and left hockey fans high and dry and frustrated, that represented an action in Maple Leaf Gardens that Mr. Ballard said he would not permit the CBC to allow to happen again. Ballard went on to say that these people are through. The next time they get into the gardens, they'll have to buy a ticket If they can get them, and he ever try to get tickets to Leaf games, 1972 wasn't easy. Leaf fans must be insured coverage of our fight to get into the playoffs," said Ballard. He went on. He said that the fans deserve it, the players deserve it, and so do the sponsors. Ballard said that he would ask McLarens, who hold the TV rights uh, to all the coverage, and uh, they'd done a great job, Ballard said, in getting some of the Leaf games on the air Saturday nights. He was going to ask McLarens to take whatever action necessary to put an end to all this nonsense. Later in the week, Ballard would in fact switch games to the CBC TV network. Well, here's a little more broadcasting news as the week began, and this one a lot of us couldn't figure out. Uh, Jig's McDonald's contract as a broadcaster for the Los Angeles Kings at this point in the season had not been renewed. Uh, That really was news for a lot of people who had recognized this relatively new man to broadcasting hockey, was doing an outstanding job with the Los Angeles Kings. But Jiggs McDonald, baby, wasn't worried at all about this because there were any number of NHL teams that would snap Jiggs up. But according to uh, several sources, the thought was he was probably going to end up with the new NHL team in Atlanta. We'd have to see just how that was going to unfold in the weeks to come the dog days of the season down the stretch run a lot of injuries being reported by teams uh the week started off with a couple of uh injuries that we were being told about Lou Angotti of the Blackhawks suffered a dislocated shoulder and a pretty significant scalp cut when he ran into a goal post and was carted off the ice on a stretcher uh that was actually better than was initially fair of those who saw Lou with the collision with the net. And remember, in 1972, the nets were anchored and almost unmovable. And when he crashed into that, they thought he might have had a fractured skull. Remember, in 72, very few people wore helmets, and Lou Angotti was not one who did. But it turned out it wasn't a fractured skull, thank goodness, but it was a pretty significant shoulder separation. And... The Flyers lost forward Michelle Perazzo with torn ligaments in his left knee. Now Perazzo had been acquired from the Blues, I think on waivers it was, earlier in the season. And he had really impressed Coach Freddie Shiro with his work ethic and his fearless play in the corners. And he was a Shiro favorite and now the Flyers had to get along without Michelle Perazzo. Now, as we mentioned near the end of last week's show, the trading deadline for the NHL was actually Monday, March the 6th at 3 a.m. What what was really going on there? Actually, sorry, that was Sunday, March the 6th at midnight, which was Monday, March the 7th at 3 a.m. in the West. Yeah, it was confusing, and I wanted to illustrate that. Uh, Whoever figured that was a good idea... Really, I don't know what the heck they were thinking of there. For years, the trading deadline had been midnight of whatever night it was. Now that there was expansion, the West Coast teams, Los Angeles and California, and now Vancouver, insisted that it be midnight their time. And of course, they just trying to make things go away, gave them their way. And so back in the East, teams were working till 3 a.m., now, there were a couple of new stories that we didn't tell you about last week because they didn't make the Monday morning papers because they had till 3 a.m. Papers like the Globe and Mail and places like that, they just weren't out then. So, the most significant news that didn't get reported was the New York Rangers bringing back veteran right-winger Ron Stewart from Vancouver, to whom he'd been traded earlier in the season along with Dave Ballone in, and Wayne Connolly in the swap that saw Gary Doak go to the Rangers. Vancouver got minor league defenseman Mike McMahon, a fairly a veteran guy, but way younger than Stewart's 39, they got him in exchange But he was immediately ticketed for American Hockey League Rochester. Now, the Rangers also made another acquisition, and this wasn't even announced till later in the week. They acquired, for some kind of other consideration, retired center Phil Goyette from the Buffalo Sabres. Later in the week, Emil Francis announced that he had convinced Phil to end his short-lived retirement and earn some extra playoff dough with the New Yorkers. It seems that while Phil did tell the Sabres that he had retired, they didn't or he didn't, file his retirement papers with the NHL so he was still eligible to play as long as a team had acquired his contract before the trading deadline, which crafty Emil Francis managed to do and Emil had his replacement for the injured Jean Rattel another tidbit about the trading deadline the seals general manager gary young was asked about not being able to make a trade at the deadline and he was whining about his inability to engineer a swap with anybody else uh i found that really ironic uh In the fact that he simply sat by a week or so earlier by his own admission and watched his owner, Charles O. Finley, usurp his authority as general manager and trade Carl Vadney to the Bruins for what many considered an inferior package to what the Seals had been offered by other clubs. As we told you before, Finley really wanted Reggie Leach who would be traded within the next couple of years anyway. And he wasn't going to make a deal with anybody else, even apparently a four or five for one offer from Toronto. Now, Young didn't have the stones, the integrity, the guts, or whatever you want to call it, to quit his post when Finley overruled him. And now he says this, All these guys want your good hockey players. They want the Reggie Leeches, Ivan Boldarev's, and Jerry Pinders. They want everybody on my club because they're all scared of us. Gary Young was not ever a real good NHL general manager. Uh, when Dick Beddoes of the Globe and Mail uh, takes a fancy to a player, likes him for a reason, he can always find a story about him. And that goes in just about any sport that Dick wrote about. This week, he tells us why, according to a top New York Rangers scout, Dennis DuPerry of the Maple Leafs made it to the NHL, while other more highly touted prospects did not. Dennis DuPerry was picked the first star in Toronto's conquest of the L.A. Kings on the weekend. He skated into the glare of the lights at Maple Leaf Gardens for a post-game bow. A story, as Mr. Mark Twain said, goes with that bow. DuPerry was born in Jonquière, Quebec, in the Lake St. John vicinity, where the Saguenay River pours down to the mighty St. Lawrence. It is the hard Canadian shield country of Chicoutimi and Arvida and Kanagami. Six years ago, when he was 17, the rangy forward Duperi played for jean Pierre Marquis in the Lake St. John Jr. A. Hockey League Marquis. Duperey was asked the other night. That's an odd nickname for a hockey team. Duperey fastened his amused, brown gaze upon the reporter. Not so odd, he says. jean was named after the Marquis of jean a Frenchman, I think, in 1966. At any rate, Duperey was included in the draft of junior players conducted by the men that trust the National Hockey League uh, building. He was the last choice in the draft, 84th and last selected by the New York Rangers. Two other players from Lake St. John League were also chosen, far ahead of DuPerry, quite a quite far ahead in fact, a center named Gay, G U A Y, and a right winger named Perron. Whatever became of them, Who treasures what NHL hopes they had? Well, after the June meetings in Montreal that June... New York Rangers operatives rolled into the Quebec hinterland to inspect the young players they had drafted for roughly $3,000 apiece. The operatives were Lou Passador, the Rangers Super Scout, and his trustee aide, Steve Berklicich, whose surname, Bob Hesketh, once wrote. Looks like it had some letters left out, and I believe he had a brother who worked with the Welland Police, later Niagara Regional Police, just before I got there. Their first pause when they arrived in the Lake St. John area was at the home of the centerman. It was 11.45 in the morning, coming up to just about a high, hot noon in the summer. Passador asked the centerman's mother, where's your son? Mom replied, he is, I'm afraid still in bed Passador was incredulous still in bed this is a guy who came out of the robust east end of fort william when it was still called fort william and he did not become a super scout by lolling in the sack until noon you have to get up before dawn to catch mr Passador, and even then you might find him prowling around with a flashlight Passador prompted the centerman's mother to rouse the boy and then suggested, bluntly, as is Lou's want, that lying in bed until noon was not exactly what the Rangers had in mind for the big league aspirants. Find something to do, Passador suggested, like helping your mom with the dishes. After they left the centerman's home, Passador muttered to Berklicich, I think we blew three grand of the Rangers' money on that kid. He ain't gonna make it. Sometimes later that day, New York scouts tracked Duperry down in his home in Jonquiere. Keir. Passeter had the same mud drill. He asked Duperry's mother, is your boy around? No, she said he's down at the ball diamond. They found the ballpark where Duperry was pointed out to them as the lanky black-haired kid behind the catcher's mask. The Jonquiere Jr. Braves were at pras- practice. DuPerry removed the catcher's mask, swiped perspiration on his brow and not hesitating said sure he'd attend training camp for the New York juniors that fall in Kitchener. When the scouts left, Pasader mentioned to Berklicich, mark it down, Dupere's gonna make it. He was sweating and he had some dirt on him and he wasn't in bed. The three Saint, Lake St. John Juniors, Gay, Perron, and DuPerry, did attend the Kitchener camp in the autumn of 1966. Duperry stayed. The others, homesick, did not. As the week went on, we had more injury news, and this one really bothered a lot of us uh, that had followed the Leafs most of our lives. Now with the Penguins, veteran defenseman Tim Horton, it was announced, would miss the rest of the Penguins' regular season games with a separated shoulder. Everybody's thoughts went to this. Is this the end of Tim Horton's illustrious career? Have we seen him play his final game? very, very possible. Tim really doesn't need his hockey money. His burgeoning donut business in southern Ontario was booming, and he was planning even more shops around the province. In fact, some people said the goal was to have a Tim Hortons in every community that had over 10,000 people. A Tim Hortons on every street corner? Well, not quite. But there were going to be a few of them if Tim had his way and maybe he would just retire from hockey so he could spend the next half of his life selling donuts. Another note from Sick Bay, but this is a coach, not a player, Johnny McClellan of the Leafs. We mentioned last week that he was missing time with some gastrointestinal problems. Well, he told Frank Orr of the Toronto Star that he has a, quote, big league ulcer. And Johnny McClellan says he doesn't plan on recur- returning to his coaching duties anytime soon. Two reasons for that. One. King Clancy won his first four games behind the Leafs bench as the interim coach and in number two John's family has a lot to do with his not going back too quickly and I think John needed to listen to his misses and the kids on that count Jean Rattel had 46 goals when he broke his ankle last week playing for the Rangers. He spoke to Gerald Eskenazi of the New York Times about the, quote, breaks of the game, and he was a bit wistful on missing his chance at 50. Rattel said, in sport, you know there's going to be up and downs. The x-rays, he says, though, they look fine that they look okay. Rattel said, they told me I'll have to wear a cast for three and a half weeks, and then I'll skate a week after they take the cast off. But Rattel says, he, you never know how soon you can come back from something like this. He says that you don't really know how much pain you're going to have till you strap the boots on and get on the ice. Rattel admitted that 50 goals was on his mind. He says, unless your name is Hull or Esposito, You don't get a chance at 50 goals very often. You'll remember that celebrated brawl between the Flyers and the Blues on January 2nd Well, it lives on in the form of a $160,000 lawsuit filed by a Lafayette Hill couple against both the Flyers and the Blues and Spectrum Management. Francis Haynes Jr. and his wife Margaret, both 29, filed the suit in common police court in Philadelphia. Haynes of 813 Ridge Pike contends his left hand was injured by a member of the Blues team while lawfully. And peacefully attempting to protect himself and his wife from further threats and from serious harm and injury. The suit says Haynes suffered serious, permanent, painful, and disfiguring injuries to his left hand and a serious shock to his nerves and his nervous system. Mrs. Haynes, the suit claims, suffered serious and grievous mental distress. The management of the blues team, the suit claims, employs persons known to be unruly, dangerous, disruptive, ill-tempered, violent, and Bellicose. Did Brian Burke write this lawsuit? Members of the Blues team took to the stands and began swinging a pro Flyers crowd after their coach Al Arbor was doused with a cup of beer while talking to an official at the end of the game's second period. The Hayneses are asking for a joint judgment of $10,000 plus punitive damages of $50,000 from each team and from the Spectrum. There was a bit of WHA news this week. Uh, actually, there was a lot, but we'll give you some of the headlines and a little bit of detail here. Uh, while Bill Hunter of Edmonton uh, was trying to sue the, the uh, effects of what looked like a feud between the new league and the National Hockey League Players Association executive director, Alan Eagleson, Hunter was a tempting to pour oil on the trouble, according to uh, one story. Hunter said that he feels the dispute between Al Eagleson and WHA President Gary Davidson is all a, quote, a misunderstanding if Eagleson was quoted correctly. Hunter, who runs the Edmonton WHA franchise, was going to fly to Toronto this week to see Eagleson. He's very eager to see good relations between Eagleson and the WHA for the Simple reason that it's going to make it easier for the new league to sign players. Norm Olman, one of Eagleson's clients, is high on Hunter's list of signing priorities, so Bill has a vested interest in having uh, a buddy buddy relationship with Al Eagleson. Eagleson apparently has been quoted as saying Ullman will likely sign with Edmonton for the league's first season. Hunter, who has entered close circuit television ventures, with such as a Clay Frazier fight uh, with Eagleson attended a press conference last fall at which time Eagleson praised the WHA and Hunter said Eagleson clearly stated that the second major league was needed and he was confident that many players at all levels of pro hockey would be keenly interested in talking contracts with the new league. Now whether they sign him or not we don't know but this is what Eagleson apparently said. Uh, Likewise, uh, Hunter says Eagleson was quite amazed at the tremendous progress made by world hockey at the time of the recent draft meetings. Now, last week, Eagleson was critical of WHA founder Gary Davidson and Dennis Murphy, the other founder, for taking $250,000 in quote finder's fee. He claimed it left the league underfinanced. So, Bill Hunter trying to smooth all this out. Now, the fact that Eagleson had kind of moved from his rah-rah, let's go WHA to uh, I don't know about this, that should have been a clue to us all that Al already was in the pockets of the NH holder, Owners not fully on the side of the players as it would seem. <laughs> Hey everyone, the 2021-22 season has been packed with dirty dangles, hat tricks, and big wins in the NHL. As the action rolls on, DraftKings Sportsbook, an official sports betting partner of the NHL, has your shot to win big as well. New customers can bet just $1 on any team and get $150 in free bets if they win. That's right, a bump in the win column for your team means free bets for you. Now, Sportsbook isn't available in your state yet. You still have a shot to light the lamp. Everyone can play for huge cash prizes with DraftKings Daily Fantasy Hockey Contest. DraftKings has given all new customers a free shot at millions of dollars in total prizes with their first deposit. So download the DraftKings app Sportsbook right now. Use promo code THPN. That's THPN for the Hockey Podcast Network. Bet just $1 on any NHL team and get $150 in free bets if that team wins. That's promo code THPN at DraftKings Sportsbook, an official sports betting partner of the National Hockey League. You must be 21 or over and restrictions do apply. And for those details, see the show notes. There was some very ominous news for one WHA franchise. The delay in the building of a hockey arena in downtown Dayton, Ohio, and other uncertainties has led Dayton Newspapers Incorporated to sever its interests in the city's World Hockey Association franchise. James Stewart Jr., vice president of DNI and president of the Dayton WHA team, said that we just decided that a thing that was risky all along was now a risk that we no longer wished to take. We received the Dayton uh, franchise before Dayton Newspapers was involved, said Paul Deneau, who was a uh, Dayton uh, architect, who was the main guy with the Dayton franchise. He said the hockey franchise will succeed and a downtown arena will succeed. Deneau said he has purchased $50,000 in stock that D&I had owned. He said D&I had a stock subscription for another 200000 and that had been rescinded. And this could be the first crack in the foundation of that Dayton WHA franchise and I remember when they announced the original WHA franchises and I saw Dayton Ohio and I thought Dayton Ohio they planned that for major league hockey well stay with us and we'll give you the eventual disposition of This Dayton franchise, because most of you know by now, there was no Dayton team. But another Ohio city had designs on an NHL team. The Cincinnati Hockey Club Incorporated Was going to send five men to New York To attend the meeting of the National Hockey League The following Sunday and Monday And they would present a bid For a major league franchise for Cincinnati For the 1974 season The representatives will be William O. DeWitt Sr., Chairman of the Board Brian Heakin, President William O. DeWitt Jr., Vice President Larry Kite Jr., And a fellow by the name of James Romaker. The club already has made a written application for membership in the NHL accompanied by a $25,000 check and of course that's a show of good faith. The group would meet all NHL officials and would have a series of charts to show why Cincinnati is a top candidate for the league. Committees from Cleveland, Indianapolis, Kansas City, and Dallas are also expected to be there all vying for two franchises expected to be available and start in the NHL in 1974. The Cincinnati group's presentation is going to include sketches of a new arena. It is proposed next to Riverfront Stadium, uh, along the river, of course, in Cincinnati. And the group has said that the arena can be built without using public tax money, and that seems to be key. Ontario Justice Patrick Galligan has authorized the executors of Stafford Smice Estate to sell to a company controlled by Harold Ballard, president of Maple Leaf Gardens, 251,545 shares in the capital stock of the gardens for a price of 7,546,300 and $50. The sale at $30 a share was made under an agreement uh, that was completed on February 2nd between Harold Ballard Limited, uh, CDDS-TAN Investments Limited, and the executors Ballard, Terrence Jeffries, and John Edison. The shares were owned partly by the executors directly and partly by C D S T A N STA Uh Investments. Smythe was president of the NHL club at the time of his death, death last October 12th. This has sounded a little incestuous to me. One of the executors of a will gets to buy the shares owned by a deceased person. I'm just going through this now in my own family. Uh, And our lawyer explained to us that the executors couldn't buy property that way. But I guess maybe the law was different in 1972. Dick Beddows had an update on the Ottawa WHA franchise for us on Thursday. He writes the promoter of the Ontario franchise in the World Hockey Association is the least vocal of the big spenders who insist they can threaten the National Hockey League. The promoter is Doug Michelle, a proprietor of the Ottawa Nationals formerly in the electrician's game, in Toronto. One of the knocks against Michelle naturally administered by his detractors in the NHL is that he has had trouble scratching up a one hundred thousand dollar bond to bind a three year lease on Ottawa's Civic Center. Michelle's uh, chief tub tub thumper, William Page, said that's all nonsense. All we gotta do with the lease is cross a few T's and dot a few Ts. I think he meant I's but you get it. The Nationals will presently announce Buck Uhl as their Executive Vice President and General Manager, positions for which he apprenticed at Maple Leaf Gardens for several years. He has most recently held the general manager's position for Hockey Canada. Page says, we are also aware that we've got to get to amounts to a couple of NHL superstars to make this team succeed. The national selected five whom they believe fit that category. Goalie Doug Favelle of Philadelphia, Maple Leaf center and captain Dave Keon, right winger Mickey Redmond of Detroit, Brad Park of the New York Rangers, and Eddie Schack now of Pittsburgh. The Vancouver Canucks are continuing to negotiate with Bert Olmstead, who's now out of hockey and he's living in Calgary. Official word is that they want him to coach their Western League farm team at Seattle, Washington. But those in the know say that they actually have designs on him replacing Hal Lako with the NHL team. And I can tell you, the Canucks players do not want to see that happen. Another kind of interesting note out of Vancouver this week. I don't remember hearing about this back in 1972. And this is from the Vancouver province's Eric Whitehead. Last heard, now, the projected Vancouver pre-season exhibition tour of, of Japan is scheduled for September 1972, and it looks like it's still on. International hockey in September. Seems like a strange idea. The local management, Vancouver Canucks management, is merely awaiting confirmation of the promised underwriting by a sponsoring Tokyo newspaper before issuing 18 list-approved Japanese bathhouses. No, that's not, I don't think, what Eric really meant. A little bit of tongue-in-cheek. I think Eric Whitehead thought this was kind of a pipe dream. Maybe it was. The idea, still tentative until positively finalized, is for a series of five Canucks intra-squad games over a span of eight days in Japan now basically it's a pretty good idea for if the Canucks were to lose any of these games it would only be to themselves so one way or another the Vancouver Canucks would return from an extensive Japanese road trip unbeaten and that would be very good for morale except Whitehead fails to mention that half the team would probably be on a five, five game losing streak this was a nice story out of the NA, uh, the American Hockey League this week. Willie Marshall set an all-time American Hockey League record for goals and games played as he started the, with the Rochester Americans on the way to a 3-1 victory over the Springfield Kings. Marshall scored on a 10-foot shot at 12.56 of the first period while the Kings had a man in the penalty box. It was the first goal of the game and the 523rd goal of Willie Marshall's American Hockey League career he and present LA Kings coach Freddie Glover had been tied for the record with 522 and it was also Marshall's 1202nd AHL game which was also a record he and Glover had been tied with 1201 games so two records for the price of one for the great Willie Marshall, I met Willie Marshall one time at at a Blue Jays game of all places, and I believe it was the second year of the franchise nineteen seventy eight I was sitting if you remember old exhibition stadium, they had the concourse running through the middle of the grandstands. I was in the first row of the upper level, and Willie was just kind of uh, looked like he he didn't enjoy wherever his seats were and he was kind of walking back and forth and I, I just I didn't know who it was at first and then I saw this fellow wearing a Hershey Bears leather hockey jacket and it struck me it was Willie Marshall so I just went down I didn't ask for an autograph I, I really don't like collecting autographs that way but I went up Uh, I introduced myself Told him that I had followed his hockey career For uh, a good many years Uh, I liked the American Hockey League a lot We had seen him play many times in Buffalo And I just wanted to, you know Congratulate him on an outstanding career He was very gracious, very nice Treated me like I was the most important person In the world to him at that time We had a nice little conversation He went on his way And I went back to watching the Blue Jays This was a pretty big deal. Back in 1972 Members of the Montreal Canadiens Helped rescue their coach Scotty Bowman and several other persons As a fire forced 100 guests to flee From the suburban Hilton Inn in St. Louis Serge Savard, Montreal defenseman Was one of five people Slightly injured in the fire He suffered a four inch Gash above the right ankle As he attempted to rescue Bowman From his smoke filled you <laughs> fourth-floor room. It took 18 stitches to close Savard's wound, but he was not expected to miss a game. That was the initial reports. As it turned out, they figured he would miss a little bit as anyway. J.C. Trombley, who had scored two goals in the Habs 5-1 victory over the Blues before the fire, played a big role in organizing the rescue effort. Trombley is a volunteer firefighter in his hometown of Bagotville, Quebec, something I could uh, identify with I was a volunteer firefighter from the age of 16 on up, mainly because my dad was a fire chief, and he insisted I volunteer as well. While Trombley helped rescue at least six people, and Guy Lapointe, another defenseman for the Habs, aided in the rescue of four as they maneuvered ladders to those caught on the upper floor of the hotel. The fire was believed to have started by a guest who was smoking in bed you may not realize this in 2022, that was a big problem 50 years ago. The damage to the 220-room hotel situated near the Lambert Field Airport was estimated at $25,000. At one point, the hockey players believed Bowman was dead. Savard who was in a dining room with the other players when the alarm sounded suffered his injury when he raced to the fourth floor and kicked out a glass panel in an unsuccessful attempt to reach Bowman's room another player Dale Hoganson has made his way into Bowman's room carrying a flashlight and he said I couldn't see a thing I managed to find the bed and I fell for it but Bowman wasn't there I had to leave because the smoke was so thick I thought Scotty was dead somewhere. Unknown to Hogan's and the other players, Bowman was on a narrow balcony ledge outside his room. He was suffering from smoke inhalation and was contemplating whether to attempt a jump to the ground. A Montreal sports writer on the scene said that Bowman screamed, How long can I take this smoke? What are my chances? Can I jump four floors? According to reports, Bowman had left his room door open after he had attempted to make his way to an elevator about 30 feet from his room. Then he forced open a glass door leading to the narrow ledge. I was unable to find the author of this interview with Scotty Bowman. Scotty talks about his uh, adventure with the uh, fire in St. Louis. Scotty was calm as he described the terrifying moments he spent gasping for and clinging to a ledge on the exterior of the Hilton Inn where the fire injured five and routed hundred guests from their rooms. The hockey coach found himself in a frantic fight for survival as soon as he got on the ledge. Smoke was so thick he thought it might be necessary for him to jump and pray that he would survive the fall. Bowman was staying in a suite of rooms numbered four eleven four twelve. He said he became wary of the suite assigned to him because of a superstitious belief about the number thirteen. He computed 13 from the digits of his room numbers, and if you know Scotty Bowman, he would do exactly that. When asked how he worked out the computation, he said 4 plus 1 plus 1 equals 6. 4 plus 1 plus 2 equals 7. 6 plus 7 equals 13. Bowman, who was well-liked by hockey fans when he was... uh, A coach of the Blues and dismissed last year told the St. Louis Post Dispatch, I was trying to make a telephone call from my room when I heard a beep beep sound. It didn't dawn on me, it was a fire alarm. I went to the refrigerator for some tomato juice and then I saw smoke seeping through the door. I opened the door and the smoke poured in. I closed the door then opened it again and shouted to Floyd, that's Floyd Curry, the Canadian's assistant general manager, who had the room across the hall. I kept shouting, but I couldn't get him to answer me. Floyd probably had absconded at the time. Bowman then was forced to close the door to his room because of the suffocating clouds of smoke. Scotty said, I went to the sliding glass window that led to the balcony or ledge, whatever you want to call it, but the window would only open six inches. I finally forced it open with my feet and hands. Then I went back to the door because I knew the elevator was only about 30 feet uh, to the left, but the smoke was way too thick. I left my room door open and crawled out on the ledge. I was the first one out there. Nobody else was there. Bowman inadvertently jeopardized his life by leaving his room door open. Now you get all those uh, instructions on the door in most hotel rooms around the world. Leaving the door open created a strong draft that blew smoke in the door through the open window and onto the ledge right where Scotty said he was almost asphyxiated. He estimated that the ledge, which was on the north side of the building, was about three foot wide and about five feet long. The hockey coach soon had company when the guest in the next room crawled out on an adjoining ledge. Bowman, who never learned the man's identity, said there wasn't any smoke on his ledge because he hadn't left his door in his room open both of us talked about whether I could make it over to his ledge he leaned over took my hand and to help me but the gap was just too wide I probably would have had to jump or sprung about five feet to make it four stories up Bowman then considered whether to attempt to reach the ledge of the room beneath him on the third floor he said it was a drop that I estimated to be about 15 feet It was too far, and even if I made it, I was afraid that the force of the fall would topple me off the ledge. In shouted conversations with the hockey players below, Bowman began figuring his chances of survival if he were to jump. He said a patch of grass appeared to be immediately below the ledge. I also saw a swimming pool, but it was too far out for me to make it, he said. Bowman added, that was no good, whether I could make it or not. (laughs) There was no water in the pool. Bowman suffered a sore throat and irritation of the eyes as a result of his ordeal. The entire Montreal contingent which consisted of 22 players. The coach, assistant general manager, trainer, equipment manager, five sports writers, and a broadcaster was transferred to the newly opened St. Louis Marriott Hotel on Interstate 70 across from Lambert Field. The team had arrived at the Hilton at about 11.45 p.m. All the players had rooms on the second floor, but only one or two were in their rooms when the fire alarm sounded. Curfew for the athletes was about 1.30 a.m. About six of them, however, were caught breaking curfew as a result of the fire. They returned to the motel at about 2 a.m. to find it surrounded by fire engines, and they watched the drama unfold. So that is this week's show, everyone. And what did we learn in this very, very eventful week? So eventful, in fact, that we're going to have an overtime show with the rest of uh, the very large stories that we couldn't fit in this week. Well, this week, we did get a couple of late trades as a result of a weird trading deadline uh, time this year. Uh, A few veterans came down with some pretty serious injuries this week. And in one case, we wondered if Tim Horton had played his last NHL game. We just hated the idea of seeing one of the NHL great defensemen having his career ended by injury. And we told you about a harrowing experience for the Montreal Canadiens and especially Coach Scotty Bowman during a hotel fire in St. Louis. One of the things we're going to have in our overtime session that we wanted to tell you about uh, Jim Coleman, the great sports writer, is going to have a bit of a talk with the veteran uh, defenseman Harry Howell, now playing out on the West Coast of, uh, as he continued his hockey career. And we're going to have a story that a lot of you might not have heard in 1972. We got a rare look into the executive suite of the California Golden Seals as former uh, Seals Chief Scout Chuck Cato explains why he left the organization for the World Hockey Association. So if you're thinking about subscribing to our podcast, this would be a good show for you to get a really good idea of what we do with the Patreon subscription shows. The 50 Years Ago in Hockey podcast is produced by Andy Cole. Can't thank him enough for all his hard work. This simply does not happen, especially with the COVID symptoms we're still experiencing without Andy's help. Andy also will produce podcasts professionally for anyone who's interested in that type of service. Get a hold of me. I can hook you guys up if you're thinking of getting one started. Andy is a true media professional. The very popular Juno-nominated Toronto indie rock group, the Rural Alberta Advantage, provides our introduction and exit music. They are going on tour beginning in May through the United States, starting out on the West Coast. I believe it's going to start in Seattle and Portland down to Los Angeles, San Francisco, across the country, New York and Boston, and they'll end up in the Midwest in Chicago and Minneapolis. If you get a chance to see them perform, don't miss it. They put on a great high-energy show. Other musical pieces and sound effects are created by Andy Cole for the podcast as well. Our research comes from files at the Toronto Star, Toronto Global Mail, and of course the many fine publications found at newspapers.com without whose great help we could not put any of this on and don't forget our other sponsor the Breakwall Brewing Company located in beautiful downtown Port Colborne Ontario if any of you ever get to the Niagara region please get a hold of me somehow And we will meet up at the break wall for a burger and a beer. You can find us every day when we'll get back to it very soon at Twitter. Uh, Our account there is at Hockey50Years. We have a Facebook page 50 Years Ago on Hockey. A WordPress site, Hockey50YearsAgo.com. Of course, you can get us through your favorite podcast app. And the easiest place is right here on the Hockey Podcast Network every week thanks again for tuning in everyone the 71 72 season is winding down it's been quite a season and some great playoffs are ahead we'll be with you all the way and you'll hope we hope you'll be with us and on that note we'll see you next time when the ice breaks.